Hello, and welcome to Listen In, a podcast about the cultural and political history of Canada's involvement in the Spanish Civil War. I'm your host, Karina Nicholson. And I'm Kevin Levanji. And today we're going to talk about Jean Watts, a Canadian foreign correspondent in the Spanish Civil War. amount of time talking to someone who works on our project, you've probably heard of Jean Watts. She is the favorite around here, and by the end of this episode, I hope you'll understand why. But she is also quite a mystery. Though during and after the war, she published many articles in magazines, newspapers, and pamphlets, we know very little about her. Much of what we know about her comes through her close friend, the prolific Canadian poet Dorothy Livesay, and this information is shaped by the subjectivity of a decades-long and at times very jealous friendship. Though much of her writing remains, Watts herself seems to slip through the records. Beyond our project, she has not evoked the fascination that Norman Bethune inspires, and as a non-military participant in the war, she has rarely made it into the histories of the MACPAPs, or other international brigades' histories. In today's episode, we will try to piece together a narrative of Watts' life, not unlike the other volunteer profiles we've recorded on Thomas Danek or Tiny Anderson, but we will also incorporate some of Watts' own writing and reflect on her unique position as a journalist and arguably queer figure during the Spanish Civil War. In today's episode, I'll draw heavily on the scholarly work of Emily Murphy, Bart Latour, and Emily Robbins Sharp, as well as the memoirs of Dorothy Livesay. As always, we'll include information on these sources on our website at spanishcivilwar.ca slash podcast. Jean Watts was born in 1909 as Myrtle Eugenia Watts. She grew up in Toronto, part of an upper-middle-class family. She met Dorothy Livesay when they were both 12, and the two attended school together. Livesay and her family were a big influence in Watts' life, and she would often attend lectures with Livesay, including one on birth control given by Emma Goldman. Watts attended the University of Toronto, where she completed a degree in psychology. She was initially a pre-med student, but she suffered from what Livesay called a breakdown and Watts's mother cited the intense coursework as one of the major causes of her bad health. She also spent some time in London and Paris, where she had more health and relationship problems, resulting in her begging Livesay to come see her. And I actually really like that part of Right Hand, Left Hand, Dorothy Livesay's kind of memoir, in which she's trying to convince her dad to let her take off for the summer and give her money to get on a steamship because her friend's, like, not having a good time. <laughs> Sometimes you'll get a call to, like, go downtown and pick up your friend, but <laughs> in the 1930s, I can't imagine getting a call being like, hop on a steamship, Come give up Paris. your summer. <laughs> I need help. But it is a testament to their friendship that lives they did, very much leaving her family and her business that she was running in the lurch. <laughs> And, uh, you know, they kind of attest to the draw of Paris, too. Oh, like, yeah, for sure. Come pick me up from Manchester. I don't know if they would be quite <laughs> the same uh, During this time, Watts was deeply involved in the leftist cultural community in Toronto. She helped found Toronto's Theatre of Action, was an important figure in the Progressive Arts Clubs, directed, for a short time at least, the famously banned play Eight Men Speak, and was part of a touring production of Clifford Odette's labor-inspired play Waiting for Lefty. Perhaps most significantly, Watts and her husband, Lon Lawson, co-founded the leftist literary magazine New Frontier, which ran from 1936 to 1938. Watts helped fund the magazine with her own inheritance. 
She was also likely arrested for distributing communist literature, or at least caught the attention of the RCMP. She had an immeasurable impact on the cultural left during the 1930s, above and beyond her own work as a journalist. Batur describes Watts as instrumental in the creation of a public oppositional voice in Canada. Watts's resistance to the status quo began at a young age. Livesey described Watts as the voice of resistance against authority in secondary school. In her memoir, Journey with Myself, Livesey devotes her longest chapter to Watts, who she calls Gina. In Livesey's memory, Watts is athletic and intellectual, brash and thoughtful, both a tomboy and femme fatale. What's clear is that Watts pushed the narrow boundaries of gender norms. Livesey recalls being shocked when Watts, quote, went so far as to only wear boys' striped cotton shorts instead of rayon panties, end quote. Livesey writes that both girls, at 13, had an ill-conceived crush on their teacher, Margaret Ford, and later they shared a crush on a fellow student, Julie. While Livesey went on to struggle to repress her own queer feelings, Watts was, in the words of scholar Nancy Butler, openly but not publicly bisexual, choosing not to hide her bisexuality, but also not making it widely public in a communist community marked by homophobia. Livesey recalls a rift in their friendship during the university years when Watts was part of the University of Toronto's, quote, lesbian crowd, close quote. Reading Livesey's memoirs, the women's long, complicated friendship reminds me of another famous, though fictional, friendship, that of Elena and Leela, the protagonists of Elena Frante's Neapolitan Quartet. Like Elena and Leela, Watts and Livesey were smart, dedicated students who took very different career paths. Like Elena and Leela, they grew up in a time of radical politics and found themselves working in social movements dominated by men. And like Elena and Leela, they competed for the same man, but also experienced tensions in their friendship due to different cultural, political, and social values, and the pressures on their own mental and physical health. Though we cannot read Livesey's writing on Watts as objective fact, she recalls her lifelong friends with love and respect, and makes a valuable contribution to our understanding of Watts' life and work. And for her part, Watts had an incredible influence on Livesey. Livesey ends her chapter by addressing Watts directly. So Gina, in the 30s and 40s, you were the new woman. Disagree as we did, your vibrant pace swung me along the same road. One of the ways that Watts subverted gender norms is through her nickname, Jim. Vautour writes that Watts circulated both publicly and privately under a self-chosen male-identified name, Jim, while maintaining a self-identification as a woman. Of course, we have no idea how Watts might have identified in the language of today, which has more terms for those who are not fully comfortable in categories of either woman or man. Regardless of her motive for going by the name Jim, it succeeded in confusing researchers. For my part, I told many people that Watts was counted twice on the Ottawa Memorial to the Mathcaps, which lists Gene Watts and Jim Watts, until I realized that there was another Canadian Jim Watts who volunteered with the International Brigades. Yeah, so that's, uh, I think... Several of us have discovered that and then gotten excited about it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, not the case. By the time she went to Spain, Watts was married to Lon Lawson, who co-founded and edited New Frontier. Her many names, Jean, Jim, Gina, Eugenia, Watts, Lawson, make her difficult to track through archives, databases, and other records. She's also more evasive because so much of her work was behind the scenes. Editorial work, organizational work, administrative work. These forms of labor are so essential to cultural and political movements, but so much less recognized and memorialized. This is, often, let's be honest, work performed by women. This isn't to say that Watts has been done a huge disservice. 
who knows if she wanted to be remembered and known as well as some of her contemporaries, but it does mean we are left with more questions than answers. I also, this is just speculation, but you wonder what the role of, kind of like coming from a wealthy family and, and being like by all accounts, like still her inheritance is quite large. Like she's really the funder for New Frontier. You wonder if, if that plays into like a relative kind of reluctance to yeah. step into the spotlight, but who knows? I mean, if she's going yeah. to, if she's going to lectures on birth control, she's not really trying to keep a low profile. <laughs> yeah, but definitely like as a more privileged person in especially like the theater of action and progressive mm-hmm. arts club, taking a more supportive role instead of being the speaker is something that's probably probably was strategic yeah. or like careful on her part. Yeah, makes sense. During the Spanish Civil War, Jean Watts traveled to Spain and worked primarily as a foreign correspondent, writing for the newspaper The Daily Clarion. Uh, and The Daily Clarion, as we've mentioned before on the podcast, was the Communist Party of Canada's newspaper. At this point, it was published six days a week and had a fairly significant circulation. And Jean Watts was the only Canadian journalist to be sent to Spain by a Canadian newspaper. So that's a pretty significant position. Mm-hmm. Like we have other people writing kind of more casually or writing for American publications, yeah. but she is the Canadian war correspondent. So the content and focus of her reporting for the Daily Clearing in Spain tells us a few things about what interested Watts and other Canadian radicals in Spain, and perhaps the position of a woman reporter there. Watts wrote some 50 articles for the Clarion and several more for, for New Frontier. We've been working on preparing an anthology of uh, all the kind of texts that have suited the Spanish Civil War, so I've spent a lot of time reading and rereading and rereading uh, Watts' articles for the Daily Clarion. I've only read about 15 or so of them out of the 50 that there were. Uh, what is interesting, though, out of this selection, uh, they actually don't fit like a very narrow conception of war reporting. There's no truly like first-hand accounts of of huge battles written by a reporter embedded with a combat unit. Uh, the closest we get to a description of a battle is a second-hand report from a Polish Canadian from Toronto who was present at the Republican victory over the Italian black shirts at Guadalajara. And then there's also an account of Bethune and Henning Sorensen, who is misidentified as Henry, presumably by Watts's editor because it was sent by cable, nearly being killed by machine gun fire close to Guadalajara as well. So this second example is especially relevant, uh, as I think it's accurate to say Watts was embedded with the Canadian Blood Transfusion Unit in Madrid. On a practical level, this makes a great deal of sense. Watts could stay at the Institute, which was supported by her indirect employers in the Communist Party. She could also travel with the Institute, which had unfettered access to Madrid and other parts of Spain, where other correspondents wouldn't be allowed to go. It also certainly wasn't uh, unheard of for a reporter to have such a like, close relationship with a Republican institution in Spain. Mm-hmm. Uh, virtually all of the reporters we remember from the war, and really so many others from other wars in history, were like, entirely partisan. So Henning Sorensen was also supposed to be a reporter before he took up his role as a translator and member of the Transfusion Unit. Uh, Watts later went so far as to say that she understood her role in Spain as that of a public relations person, not a reporter as we would conceive of of the role. Watts' articles also reveal that most of her articles were broadcast over stations UGT and EAQ in Madrid. 
uh, along with Bethune and Sice, and visiting uh, British scientist JBS Haldane Watts. And Ted Allen. And Ted Allen, of course. Mm-hmm. How could we forget? Uh, <laughs> Watts broadcasted on the shortwave radio station to the Anglophone world, uh, fulfilling two purposes. So it was both radio propaganda work and it saved the Daily Clarion the cost of cabling for articles. It was also obviously a lot faster than sending a letter from mm-hmm. Madrid, which was, you know, surrounded by fascists at this point. Most of the articles I've read here have to do with the behind the lines effort in Madrid. Two particularly interesting pieces have to do with the efforts to train women to take on roles in factories and hospitals during the war. So for, you know, uh, someone who's not too familiar with the Spanish Civil War, the Rosie, the Riveter narrative is you know, well known enough to us to kind of understand what's going on here. There's women taking jobs that were vacated by men who became soldiers. In Spain, there was also the matter of uh, the deepening of Republican social policies during the war. In Spain, the stranglehold of the church was being broken by the Republic, and that included its like, attendant uh, patriarchal restrictions on women. Uh, these included remarkably low literacy levels among women, and they were being addressed for both ideological and practical reasons here. So women's liberation was, and obviously still is, a pillar of the left, but these women were also needed uh, to take on the skills to further the Republicans' war effort, especially working as nurses and working in factories. And the, the nursing thing is especially an issue, I guess. There, there's a line in this, this article about women showing up to the hospital to work but they couldn't read the charts. They couldn't, mm-hmm. and the hospital didn't have the time to teach anyone how to read. Yeah, so. and a lot of the nursing prior to the war was done by nuns. Right. Um, so having the Catholic Church on the other side definitely meant that the Republican effort had a shortage of nurses. Yeah, definitely. definitely. This is really interesting. There's a huge focus on how these initiatives were being led by women. Mm-hmm. There's the Women's Anti-Fascist League. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, there, there's some sources that talk about Watts being uh, put into this role because she was a woman. At the same time, I mean, I mean she had pretty much total editorial control. Yeah. The fact that she's uh, drawn to these stories and uh, we're not going to, we wouldn't get these stories if Ted Allen was the exclusive, like, daily yeah. player. So I think it's so interesting that we have a view on the behind the lines issues and the real, like, the actual social revolution going on in Madrid at this point. Um, yeah. Like we wouldn't have done that otherwise, and I think that's awesome. Yeah, and it's so interesting to use the term behind the lines because it wasn't, you <laughs> know, true. like we talk, we've talked about this a lot. Like there was there was a probably a clear demarcation between the front mm-hmm. and the not front, but that wasn't a distinction that was respected during bombings no. and during fighting. So Madrid itself had fronts, had front lines and barricades and things like that, but also... Uh, they, they were experiencing violence on the daily, like mm-hmm. women standing in bread lines. Yeah, so uh, she's not really staying away from the action. No. She's just focusing on a different form of it, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. If you want to read more about Watts' journalism, especially in comparison to other war reporting from the Spanish Civil War and elsewhere, including that of Martha Gellhorn, Emily Murphy wrote... Five case studies on Jane Watts for our website, and we will link to those in the show notes uh, that really get into depth about Watts's reporting and uh, the context of war journalism during the Spanish Civil War and women's reporting in general. Um, also, going back to what Kevin was saying about kind of like training of women during the war, 
I've mentioned it before, but Free Women of Spain, Mujeres Libres, was a, there's a book on the anarchist women's movement in Spain at this time and how their central tenants were kind of like childcare, birth control, and training and education of women, which is super interesting to read, like the extent of training they did during that time, like in order to empower women in so many different ways. And one of the, we don't talk about it that much here, but the, the term, the Spanish Revolution is often used, especially by uh, anarchist sources during this period to talk about the massive social changes that were going on mm-hmm. behind the, the well, behind the lines again, but you know, <laughs> like during, in Spain during this time period behind yeah. the uh, behind the Republican lines, and yeah, that these are some of the only examples of documents that we have that that really show exactly what was was yeah. going on in this regard, which is really cool. Yeah, that is really cool from an international perspective. Yeah, yeah, because I find that the international international perspective was definitely interested in women fighting, mm-hmm. um, but uh, the anarchist women in particular were partaking in revolutionary uh, strategies that didn't necessarily serve the Republican effort. Right. Like they didn't really care. Like you were saying that in some ways training and educating women serves the Republican effort mm-hmm. by making nurses and factory workers. Mm-hmm. But they, that wasn't their motive, right? No. <laughs> like it was a totally different um, kind of revolutionary action that was happening within mm-hmm. a war. Yeah, for sure. So this is a pretty common, uh, okay, no. Watts also makes much of the idea that the Republic is the defender of science and culture in the face of what she and many others at the time termed uh, fascist barbarism. Again, very common kind of trope, often messily tied up with the idea that the the fascists were using the, quote, Moorish troops. Yeah. Uh, so that's like, that gets, in this case, that's not present here. The idea that the Republicans were the defenders of enlightenment and reason and science and art and all these things, whereas the fascists were interested in the best example of Watts's use of the the idea of the Republic as defender of science and culture comes in her article, uh, Spain is Different, which is in New Frontier number 2.2 from May 1937. It also is a really good example of how... uh, she followed the Bloodshirts Fusion Unit really closely and worked with them, drove an ambulance for them sometimes. Some inspired publicity writer tired of blurbs on sunny Spain, a tourist paradise, once designed a poster which said simply, Spain is different. That man, if he is alive today, must be amazed at his own perspicacity. For Spain is different. There has probably never been a city in the world where it was possible to walk out to the trenches and get back in time for tea. But you can do it in Madrid. Or never another city where life goes on so normally amid the sounds of guns and the whistle of dropping shells. So she goes on to describe the bravery of the people of Madrid and the face of fascist bombardments and spends a long time focused on the respect with which the soldiers treat the university and its books, which was a, the university was a site of a lot of fighting, even while the philosophy building is the front lines. Uh, and then she continues, let me tell you of another incident in which members of the Canadian Blood Transfusion Institute took part. Last week, a Spanish doctor, who was formerly head of the Department of Physiology in the University of Madrid, asked these Canadians to assist him in rescuing his physiological library from the remains of the medical building in University City. When he spoke of this building, tears came into his eyes. It had just been completed last summer with a beautifully equipped laboratory and was to have opened in September. Instead of medical students came the fascist generals. 
The test tubes were smashed by shells before they could ever be used for experiments, which would benefit humanity at large. But the books might still be there, and they at least would be invaluable in his present work in the Senegal Militar, the medical division of the army. The expedition set out in a truck and drove as far as the trenches, then proceeded on foot through the trenches and through an underground passage, which brought them up through the cellar of the building. Although the place was in direct line of fire from the fascist trenches, they were safe enough so long as they were not seen entering. Entering the big lecture room, they could feel, in spite of the gaping holes in the walls and the shattered benches, the beauty and order of this place. For science, freed at last from its medieval fetters, was to have been free to work for a better life for man. The Spanish doctor felt it too, and he did a strange thing. He went to his desk, pulled open a drawer, took out his notes for his first lecture of the year, mounted the small platform, and began to read. The others sat quietly on the bench and listened. A hundred yards away, a machine gun duel started. The little drama was finished. The lecture notes were put into the doctor's pocket. They will be used yet. They will be used when every invader has been driven from Spanish soil. Then it will be impossible for German and Italian bullets to down to drown out the voice of a Spanish physiologist as he lectures to his medical students in University City. The books, which were the object of the trip, were found intact in the library. Spanish soldiers grinned with pleasure at the sight of six men, each loaded down with an armful of volumes, walking carefully through the winding trenches to where the truck was parked. In two such journeys, 200 books were saved. Things like these happen every day. When the forces of blind destruction, the book burners of Germany, and the slaughterers of unarmed Ethiopians of Italy are pitted against the forces of progress, those who fight to save their books, their art, their science, and Spain, we know that progress must win if the human race is to be kept from utter annihilation, and we know that we must help them win. And that's the end of the article. That's my favorite of the, the pieces that, that Watts wrote. Most of Watts's writing in Spain was for the Daily Clarion or for New Frontier, but we do have a couple of pieces on the website and one that's going into the anthology about kind of her last act in Spain and I guess in a bigger way, the, the last involvement that Canadians had during the Spanish Civil War, which was to try to help the large numbers of Spanish refugees who had uh, fled into France at this point. So Watts was... Uh, a correspondent and, I guess I would say, researcher for the Canadian Committee to Aid Spanish Refugees. As we've covered before in our episode uh, on camps and the Spanish Civil War, as the Republican cause came to look increasingly lost, a huge number of Spanish refugees fled in France. And in addition to the contempt and neglect that refugees often face on arrival, uh, these particular refugees encountered the hatred of the French right and the relative inaction and eventual collapse of the popular front government in 1938. So things were pretty bleak. And uh, we'll read you a little excerpt here. So this article is from uh, May 25th, 1939. Half a million Spanish refugees. It's such a staggering number that it's difficult to get any mental picture of the situation, except in terms of a huge mass of people. And in order to get Canadians interested enough to help in our relief work, it's not very effective to simply speak of half a million half-starved, raggedly clothed people. We have to give some good, hard-hitting facts that are easier to imagine, in terms of human beings. That's why I'm writing this. Since during the five weeks I was in France, I visited both civilian and military refugee camps, saw and heard some of the heartbreaking things that are happening to the people in them, and realized every minute of that time that... Although money won't give them back their country, it will at least keep them alive. 
that Canada simply can't let up in sending money at this time. The general setup as far as the Spanish refugees is this. The French government, through the Minister of the Interior, has distributed the women and children throughout every department in France, asking the prefecture of police of each department to distribute them in groups in the various municipalities according to their ability to support them. Practically every municipality has a group of women and children, together with a small group of old men, housed in all sorts of buildings, from extremely ancient factories, roughly built barracks, prisons, to fairly habitable houses. The municipalities supply food to the groups to the value of 7 francs a day, about 20 cents for adults, and 4 francs a day, about 11 cents for children. That's all. In practically every case, the buildings were completely and blankly empty when the refugees moved in, the only exception being some sort of cooking equipment and some long trestle tables and benches. Considering that not one woman in the hundred brought anything across the border with her except the clothes she and her children stood up in, and perhaps a blanket or two, the camps are not home-like. In some cases, there's just loose straw on the floors and everybody sleeps in a row, as close as possible for warmth. In some cases, bolts of sacking have been distributed, and the women have made mattresses to stuff the straw into, which is tidier but not much softer. In some cases, our international committee has already supplied metal cots and bedding. They can go on doing that just as fast as finances permit. Life in the camps is not pleasant. There's a limit to the amount of time the women can spend on housework when the house is just a big old factory with some straw on the floor. The potato-peeling squads sit around on boxes and sing, because they have something to do. If there's anything to knit or sew with, the women knit or sew. But there isn't very much yet. Because it's not warm weather yet, they just have to let the children run around dirty. They can't let them go naked while they wash their only clothes. Those who live in the smaller villages or outside of a town are the most fortunate, since they can walk around the countryside. But those who are in the larger towns are usually practically prisoners being allowed out only one day a week, and then in small groups under the guidance of one of the town authorities. On top of all of this, not one woman in the hundred knows where her husband or her older sons are, maybe in the concentration camps, maybe still in Spain. With a dozen concentration camps and 50 to 70,000 men each in them, it's not easy to find out. If they do find out, there's no chance to see them, only an occasional letter to be written if a stamp can be acquired somehow. And she goes on to describe the specific conditions in, in various different types of these small refugee camps, um, making a big point that the if you're in a left-wing area of France, these refugees were a lot better off than if they were in a right-wing area of France, where they're treated with like utter hostility and contempt on the street. Mm -hmm. uh, talks a lot about the, the teachers' union in France, which donates as much as they can to kind of give the kids like pens and paper and that sort of thing. And, yeah. The attempt to run small schools out of these uh, out of these camps and how difficult it was. Um, it's really interesting. She's such a good writer. Yeah, this <laughs> this part in particular is really affecting. Um, yeah. Well, well done for sure. So the other day, Kevin and I were talking about this journalism in particular from her work with the Refugee Association mm -hmm. and how she's one of the few Canadians to kind of be able to and or choose to remain in Europe during the refugee crisis yeah. of the Spanish Civil War. There were probably so, only, other than the people in prison camps, mm -hmm. who I think were released actually just before this reporting, 
But other than that, there was probably one or two other Canadians still floating around Spain at this point. Yeah, and I imagine that would have to do, once again, with her wealth, right? Yeah. That she's able to do this, that she doesn't need to come back and work or anything like that. But it's really important work. Mm-hmm. It's really uh, great that we have this kind of record of what the refugee crisis after the Spanish Civil War during the ends of the war looked like. Yeah. Um, which I think kind of gets lost when we move into the Second World War. Yeah, I think so. Especially, there was only a few month period here where this seemed like the most important thing going on. And mm-hmm. then right after that, the, the war broke out. And yeah. There is a lot more to be studied about the Canadian uh, Committee to Aid Spanish Refugees. Mm-hmm. Salem Bland, who was a uh, minister and, and kind of popular writer on the social gospel. During this period, he was like the honorary chairman of, of I think, this committee and um, one of these refugee homes for children in, I think it was in Barcelona, called uh, Salem Bland House. And there's a couple mm-hmm. more. Like Bethune had a whole plan for children's villages on the edge of the Pyrenees, which the Republic collapsed too yeah. soon for that. But there's there's a lot there's a lot here if anyone ever wants to look into it. There's also some um, really neat children's drawings drawn mm-hmm. by some of these kids. They're in the uh, archives in uh, Toronto, the Ontario Provincial Archives. So. Yeah, and I can link to a Briar Patch article on that. Yeah. Other interesting facts about Watts. <laughs> While in Spain, she also worked in the Censorship Bureau in Valencia, and she served as a driver for the British Medical Unit, uh, and she had a brief affair with an Englishman named David Crook, who became a spy for the KGB during the course of their short affair. Great name for a spy. David Crook. Oh my god, you're so right. <laughs> totally missed yeah. that. And if you want to know more about her driving an ambulance, there's a tiny computer game in which you are Gene Watts driving an ambulance and picking up soldiers and avoiding missiles. <laughs> and I will link to that as well. I've never gotten that far in it. So during World War II, Watts enlisted in the Canadian Women's Army Corps, where she served as a private and then a lieutenant, lieutenant. Uh, she worked as a driver and a personnel officer, uh, primarily in Ontario, during the war. After the war, she raised a family with Mom Lawson, the two adopted children. Uh, but as she was no longer publishing and no longer particularly close with Dorothy Livesay during these years, we know very little about Watts after the Second World War. Uh, she committed suicide in March of 1968 at the age of 59. And... Uh, if you know more about her, we are always hungry for information. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. I think you can see now why uh, she's a, a favorite around here. Just like one of the one of the many people in who we know of involving the kind of Canadian contribution to the Spanish Civil War, who was involved in so many different aspects yeah. and, and in so many different ways. Um, very adaptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, very much. Resourceful and using in terms of using her privilege and her skills to help the Republicans in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. I want to say more about like casual and systematic sexism during the nineteen thirties and mm-hmm. during the Spanish Civil War, and I definitely talked about, about that in previous episodes. But it is still something I'm really interested in, um, and it's something that comes up in Emily Murphy's work. She works on her dissertation was about included work on June. Jean Watts, but also included work on Zelda Fitzgerald, um, Martha Gellhorn, and Nancy Cunard, who were all very significant figures who all ended up 
uh, having breakdowns or in kind of being marginalized. Um, and there's a really interesting story there about the kind of toll that um, being a woman in this period had. Right. <laughs> like um, being around famous men who relied on you but didn't respect you in every possible way. Um, and when we talked about like how Watts as an upper class figure might have taken a step back in order to let other people kind of have the voice or have center stage, it's also interesting to think about how those working class people would often have been men because Dorothy Livesay writes about how she often worked with men in the leftist movement and their wives would be at home being the typical wife while their husband had time to be radical and revolutionary. <laughs> and that makes Watts's focus on women's involvement mm -hmm. in Spain that much more interesting, right? Definitely. Like, yeah. Anyways, I'm rambling now. No, well, I mean, this, this is actually, I think, worth depending on to the end for sure because and another thing that, that is really interesting from, from this period is the the ways in which earlier more radical forms of like socialism and communism not associated with the popular front had in some way uh, i don't want to give them too much credit but more room for like feminist critique mm -hmm. because it was it was just simply more radical so there wasn't a, there was less of an issue of like alienating the like kind of the bourgeois model of, yeah, of like the but family the popular home. front involves some kind of like compromise. And yeah, and something of a retreat on a lot who, of issues. Who ends up getting compromised? Yeah, definitely, definitely. I think the the issue of we briefly touched on like homophobia during in this period. Obviously, that was this was still a a massive problem in, in earlier periods too. But you know, if you look at the the early days of the Soviet Union, for example. The, there was like comparative openness that, that gradually got closed off as there were a whole bunch of reasons for kind of a more conservative social term mm -hmm. there. And I think that also affects the rest of kind of the communist socialist movement around the world where there's there was a closing off where there had been an openness that uh, yeah. that's disappointing. Yeah, and this is super pertinent now because we can never really forget how homophobia is a part of or goes in hand with fascist conservative movements mm -hmm. because the, earlier this week the conservatives won all of Alberta okay not all of Alberta but most of Alberta despite the fact that Jason Kenney is the leader is famously homophobic mm -hmm. and has a long history of homophobia that has definitely showed up in his campaigning and yeah. in his choice of candidates and it's a very scary time right now for people to be queer in Alberta. And it's also a time when an acquaintance of mine who is queer and runs a queer shop in Alberta posted yesterday that somebody did the Nazi salute to them on the street. So anti-fascism and queer movements, women's movements, kind of have to build coalitions, right? Because <laughs> yeah. The right and homophobia and fascism definitely have those coalitions down. Yeah, <laughs> they have as them always. as strong as ever. <laughs> yeah. Um, the bosses and the right are always organized. So. <laughs> yeah, they're so organized. Yeah. It's almost as if they have so much money. <laughs> yeah. well, the, and well, the other thing about yeah, the, the other thing about the right is they always know where they stand. Well, we could probably ramble for another thirty-five minutes. We could, or we could just wrap just, it up. Thank you, thank you everybody for listening. <laughs> yeah, thank you for listening. Someday I'm going to post a radio episode, which will also have a lot to do with Gene Watts yeah, as one of the broadcasters. Yeah. I promise it'll happen soon. <laughs> Listen in. <laughs>
Today's episode was written and produced by Karina Mickelson and Kevin Levangi and supported by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. As always, you can find information on all the sources we cited in today's episode in our show notes at SpanishCivilWar.ca slash podcasting. You can get in touch with us through Twitter at CanadaSCW or on our website. Today's theme music was Libertad by Irete and Pizarro.